there's great expectation, especially amongst prophecy watchers, that Jesus will be welcomed back to Israel in the future. And it will take a religious awakening within the Jewish people before this can happen. It won't be secular people who will summons Jesus with Baruch Haba, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That kind of talk belongs to religious Jews. And today, many religious Jews, even secular ones, have an expectancy that Messiah is coming soon. Many Jews believe that they must be proactive to usher in the Messianic age. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Jewish tradition sometimes refers to two messiahs. Some regard this concept as a rabbinic invention, but others say there are definitely two portraits of Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures and that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills both types, the suffering Messiah and the triumphant ruling King Messiah. According to Jewish eschatology, both redeemers, Messiah, son of Joseph, and Messiah, son of David, will be involved in delivering the Jewish people from exile in order to usher in the long-awaited Messianic era, a time period that Christians call the millennium. However, when speaking of the Messiah, the Jewish people generally have in mind the son of David who will rule the Messianic age. The rabbis derive their understanding of Messiah, son of Joseph, not only from the book of Genesis, but also from their exegesis of the little book of Obadiah in the Hebrew Bible. And verse 18 of Obadiah prophesies, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. I find all this fascinating because the Jewish people are increasingly calling for Messiah to come. I believe that's one reason why the patriarch Joseph is kept in the news, because he's a type and an idiom of the Messiah himself. Joseph, son of Jacob, is a type of Jesus. Among Israelis who are religiously observant, followers of the Breslev movement are infused with a great deal of biblical faith. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, who lived at the turn of the 19th century, was a great-grandson of the famous Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidic Judaism in Eastern Europe. Rabbi Nachman's Breslev branch of Hasidic Judaism has three core tenets. The first of these is to Pour out your heart to God in a form of meditation, usually performed outdoors in a secluded and natural spot. Rabbi Nachman taught that his followers should spend an hour each day alone, talking aloud to God as if talking to a good friend, in addition to the Jewish prayer book. A second tenet, Tikkun Habrit, concerns maintaining sexual purity. 
And the third tenet is a deep attachment to the Sadikim. And the Sadikim are men considered to be exceptionally righteous. Well, all of those traits were personified in the biblical patriarch Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel. When we think of the biblical patriarchs, of course, the first who come to mind are Abraham, the father of faith, Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, and Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet concerning Jacob's son, Joseph, more space is devoted in Genesis to him than to the other patriarchs. And if you search the scriptures, you'll find that there's not a single word of reproof against Joseph, except his family's rebuke of his God-given dreams. When he was cruelly sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, Joseph chose to go to prison in Egypt rather than sin sexually with his master's wife. In fact, his sterling character is worthy of careful study. His nobility, his purity of heart and life, his greatness as a ruler and faithful brother all add up to being an illustration of the coming Messiah more than any other character in the Hebrew scriptures. Before he died in Egypt, Joseph had requested that his bones be brought up from Egypt to the promised land. And according to Joshua 24:32, Joseph was buried at Shechem in the ground his father Jacob had purchased. Today, Joseph's tomb is located at the eastern entrance to the valley that separates the biblical mountains of blessings and cursings. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. The tomb is located in Samaria, only 300 meters from Jacob's well, on the outskirts of what is today the city of Nablus. I've been privileged to visit Jacob's well many times, but so far I've only been to Joseph's tomb once because it's located in a highly contested corridor. The Jewish sages teach that Joseph's request to be buried in the promised land was providential. If we look into Genesis chapter 50, Joseph said to his brothers in Egypt, I'm about to die and God will surely take notice of you and bring you up to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel promise to carry up his bones from Egypt to the promised land. Joseph could have requested to be buried in the promised land immediately after his death, just like his father Jacob had been. It was a long pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land just to bury Jacob. All of Pharaoh's officials and dignitaries accompanied the members of Joseph's household and his brothers. Chariots and horsemen also went up with a very large company. But Joseph prophetically insisted that they should bring out his bones only when the Israelite nation made their exodus from Egypt to the promised land. Meanwhile, according to the Bible, Joseph was embalmed and buried in a coffin in Egypt. A later Midrash identified his first tomb as a royal mausoleum. But Moses gathered Joseph's bones and took his coffin during the Exodus. And this account was repeated by the Jewish historian Josephus, who specified that Joseph's bones were buried in Canaan, the land of Israel.
So this week I was very touched to read a breaking Israel news story about an Israeli, Nahi Weiss, who has been risking his life night after night to visit the tomb of Joseph. From an early age, Weiss adopted Joseph as a role model. Weiss was raised in an ultra-Orthodox home in Jerusalem, and he's writing a book about his experiences from his childhood, praying at the tomb of Joseph. Weiss risked his life many times to make a pilgrimage to the tomb, despite Arab hostility in the neighborhood, because he's convinced that Joseph, more than any other Bible character, is the key to the Messianic age. Weiss believes Joseph was the kind of ideal man. He was powerfully male. He was active in finance, yet straightforward in all of his dealings. Joseph demonstrated consistent integrity while being immune to distractions and temptation. Against all odds, Joseph also retained his self-identity while being able to relate to those unlike him. Those are admirable traits, a role model in Weiss's view to fix society's problems. Well, at the age of 14, Weiss put feet to his religious devotion to pay his respects to Joseph with a large group of faithful men from the Breslev sect of Hasidic Judaism who decided to venture to Joseph's tomb. And it was a dangerous mission because of the Second Arab Intifada uprising in 2000, the Israel Defense Forces prohibited Jewish visitation to the tomb, which is under Palestinian control. The tomb's building had been desecrated and burned down. But in 2002, Weiss joined 300 Jewish men traveling by night to visit the tomb. The Israeli army caught and arrested all but 14 of the group. Weiss was among the few who managed to evade capture. The action of those night visitors forced the Israeli government's hand to reinstate Jewish visitation. Periodically and on special occasions, trips are now organized under heavy protection of the Israeli army. Subsequently, Weiss has made the dangerous journey hundreds of times over the past 12 years, visiting the site several times a week. His actions have required avoiding Israeli army patrols as well as the Palestinian police, sneaking in at night, avoiding certain paths, and sometimes hiking through fields in total darkness. He's been shot at by Palestinians, pelted with stones many times, but he always keeps going back to honor Joseph. Well, we Christians may wonder, why do religious Jews pray at a tomb? Many of the modern Jewish zealots believe they have to be proactive in bringing the Messiah. And these holy places are a point of contact, they believe, with God. They quote Zechariah 1.3 as a biblical mandate in which God says, Turn back to me, and I will turn back to you. Many Israelis, not all, but many today, believe that there are certain steps that will have to come about to bring Messiah's appearing. First, there must be a physical return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Then the building of the third temple and also the return of the Davidic dynasty. Some believe that only the Messiah himself can restore the temple. 
but others are proactive, doing what they can to make it happen, even if it puts them in harm's way. Weiss believes that the tomb of Joseph is an important holy site and should be entirely open to visitors, Jewish, Christian, and Muslims. Indeed, reading about his forthcoming book this week and all of his adventures was a reminder to me that the tombs of the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs give legitimacy to Jewish claims to the land in places like the Bible heartland in Samaria and Shechem, where Joseph is buried. And in Bethlehem, where Joseph's mother Rachel's tomb is another hotly contested corridor. And in Hebron, burial place of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. So Joseph's tomb is constantly in the news as a reminder that the Jewish people definitely have ancient, historic, and biblical roots in the Holy Land. And their claims simply can't be denied. Furthermore, God is keeping the Hebrew patriarch Joseph in the news because he is a type of the Messiah. In fact, there are more than 100 parallels between the lives of Joseph, son of Jacob, and Jesus, Yeshua, son of David. Just as Joseph was hated, envied, and rejected by his brethren and sold for pieces of silver, so Jesus was hated, envied, rejected, and betrayed for pieces of silver. The parallels are amazing. In due time, both Joseph and Jesus were vindicated and exalted by God. But no parallel is as poignant to me as the tears of Joseph and the tears of Jesus. If we look into Genesis 43:30, after a separation of 20 years, Joseph was deeply moved at the sight of his younger brother, Benjamin, because they shared the same mother, Rachel. Joseph escaped the room to look for a private place to weep. And when Joseph finally revealed his identity to his brethren after 20 years of separation, Genesis 45.2 also records that Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And over in the gospel accounts, Jesus' tears over Jerusalem and the fate of his people remind us they're reminiscent of Joseph's tears over his estranged family. Luke 19.42 records that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep over it, saying, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And he wept and wept. The Bible's shortest verse is John eleven thirty five. Two words, Jesus wept. The Lord's tears at the tomb of Lazarus teach us that he feels very keenly the sorrows and distresses of our lives. And Hebrews 5, 7 gives us a commentary on the Lord's tears that he shed in Gethsemane. It says he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent, loud cries and tears mingled with drops of blood offered for the sins of the world. You see, in a most mysterious agony, Jesus bore the crushing weight of our sins, past, present, and future. But it's not recorded that Jesus wept at his crucifixion. That's because his determination to die on our behalf was fixed at that point. 
In fact, as Jesus was walking to Golgotha, the Gospels tell us that a large number of people followed him, including mourning and wailing women. But Jesus turned aside to prophesy to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, do not weep for me, but weep rather for yourselves and for your children. As a grafted in daughter of Zion with the women of Jerusalem, I still mourn over the evil and the anti-Semitism that's proliferating in this world because men do not honor God's word. Yet we can rejoice that Jerusalem shall yet become a praise in the earth and the worship capital of the world as prophesied when Jesus, Yeshua, the son of David, returns and is seated upon the ancestral throne of his father, David. In the book of Ezekiel, it's recorded that the Lord notes and marks those who sigh and cry for all the city's abominations. And tears are liquid prayers. Billy Graham once said, tears shed for yourself are tears of weakness, but tears shed for others are a sign of strength. And the most successful minister of the early church, the apostle Paul, showed that strength because he testified that he prayed for the church with many tears and with much affliction and anguish of heart. So God knows and records our tears. In fact, in Psalm 56, 8, King David mentioned that the Lord had bottled all of his tears and recorded them in a book of tears. Now, God doesn't bottle our tantrum tears, but he does treasure and bottle our repentant tears. And someday soon, like Joseph, Jesus will reveal himself to his brethren, the Jewish people, and there will be much weeping, but also reconciliation. Joseph forgave his brothers for betraying him because he was able to see the big picture. Joseph perceived God's wonderful providence in using his exaltation to power in Egypt to save his family during a time of famine. And likewise, Jesus also forgave his tormentors because he was able to see the big picture of being the savior of Israel and the savior of the world. Before they were reconciled, first Joseph had the extraordinary patience to test his brothers. And the Bible commentaries observe the severity of the love of Joseph in the providence of God Joseph didn't allow his personal feelings to interfere with his duty to his family and to Bible prophecy. And also God will allow the Jewish people to go through the time of Jacob's trouble because of his great love to bring them to repentance. Joseph's brotherly love was noble and God's love to us is still nobler. But severity often accompanies it. God disciplines us for our own good. Just as Joseph's brothers deserve to be tested and disciplined, the Lord tests us and subjects us to trials and tribulations to bring us prostrate before him, to acknowledge our sin, just as Joseph's brothers were brought to a similar position. Through various tests mentioned in the book of Genesis, Joseph was able to discover that his brothers were indeed repentant for having sold him as a slave and that they were truly now sympathetic to their elderly father's feelings. 
even though he was the governor and potentate of the land, Joseph was therefore free to say to his brothers, come close to me. And when they came close, he revealed, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. What gracious words. Joseph didn't say, I'm your brother who you sold as a slave, but you sold into Egypt. In other words, you sold me into my destiny. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, he said, because it was to save your lives that God sent me ahead of you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Amen. Now, I want us to consider that Jesus also calls us to come close to him. He wants us to receive him as our brother and savior. He comforts us and tells us not to be angry with ourselves for our sins and mistakes. But like Joseph's repentant brothers, we should rejoice that Jesus offers us pardon and deliverance. Just as God sent his favored son, Joseph, to Egypt to save Jacob's family, so God sent his only begotten son into this world to save all of us, to save those who will believe on the son of God. Joseph's brothers were looking for food, but God knew they also needed reconciliation. And so circumstances came about that Joseph was able to invite them, come near. And Jesus also invites each and every one of us to come to him. When we acknowledge our sin, the Lord embraces us as Joseph embraced his brethren and extends forgiveness to us. Joseph was his brother's judge, but he revealed himself to them privately, covering their sin. And Jesus invites you to come to him right now in the privacy of your home or wherever you are, and he will cover your sin by his blood. Hallelujah. Many people, because they know I have a ministry in Israel, often ask me why the Jewish people are unable to recognize Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. And my answer is this. If God had blinded you, could you see? The New Testament teaches that the Jewish people have been legally blinded to the identity of Jesus. Not all of them, mind you, because there must always be a remnant of Jewish believers in the body of Messiah in order to make up the one new man of Jew and Gentile together in Messiah. But most of the Israelites have been legally blinded to Jesus until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And when the fullness of the Gentiles finally happens, when the last Gentile who should be saved is saved, then the judicial blindness on the Jewish people will be removed by God. And all of Israel shall be saved. That's the teaching of the New Testament of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just as Joseph was disguised, so Jesus is presently disguised, but not for long. I believe Genesis 42, 8 is a wonderfully prophetic verse. It says, and Joseph knew his brothers, but they knew him not. This speaks volumes because Jesus knows and deeply loves his brethren, but at present, they don't know him. Joseph's childhood dreams that got him into so much disfavor with his jealous brothers were fulfilled. And in Genesis 42, 6, 
Joseph's brothers bowed down before him, it says, with their faces to the ground. When Joseph had first told them of his dreams, they mocked him and scoffed, saying, Shall you then indeed reign over us? Shall you have dominion over us? But the Bible commentaries teach that Joseph knew in the foreordination of God that he was put in the position of Lord over his brethren. So he felt duty bound to use his authority in Egypt for their moral good. Have you ever wondered how was Joseph instantly able to recognize his brothers? All 10 of them were full grown men when he had last seen them on that fateful day in Dothan. He was quite familiar with their appearances and he understood their mother tongue. The biblical record says, and he made himself strange unto them, but they knew him not. So why didn't Joseph's brothers have a clue about him? Actually, when you add up the reasons, it isn't so strange. Joseph had changed in appearance much more than they had changed because he was much younger. When they tragically sold Joseph into slavery, they were already full-grown men. He was but a youth at their parting. They appeared before him in their usual dusty garb, but Joseph was wearing his official elegant attire. They never dreamt of Joseph as governor of Egypt, clothed before them as a prince. And besides, he spoke the Egyptian language now, and he had acquired Egyptian manners. He stood before them in such power, splendor, grandeur, and authority, surrounded by an entourage attending him, so that they never once thought of their little half-brother Joseph, whom they supposed was surely dead by now. At first, Joseph treated them roughly, but his stern manner was not revenge. It was his intention to bring them to repentance. God in his providence sometimes seems harsh to those he loves. Today, it's so hard for the Jewish people to recognize Jesus because he's been made to look like a Gentile to them by the church. The church has dressed Jesus in Gentile idioms, yet even after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, Jesus describes himself in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and as the root and offspring of King David. He's the same today. He hasn't changed. That's one reason why the recovery of Jesus's Hebrew roots is important. Someday soon, the Jewish people will receive Jesus back into the fold. As we see anti-Semitism increasing exponentially, it's surely an end time sign. And so my prayer is from Psalm 25. Deliver Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. And that deliverance will come ultimately when Jesus returns. My question to you today is, are you ready for his return? Do you know the ABCs of the gospel? This is the ABCs. Accept the claims of the Lord Jesus upon your heart as Savior and Lord. Believe on him and call upon his name, and the Bible promises you shall be saved. Amen. Well, I want you to feel free to contact me on the social media or at our website at exploits.tv 
where you can sign up to receive our free color magazine exploits. A reminder also that our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from the app stores onto your mobile phone or tablets. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.